1: When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to, Hello when, Diplomacy and welcome Fails. to when Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Boxer Rebellion, which originally aired as one episode on the 30th of September, 2012. Welcome to the podcast. So, Asian history isn't exactly my forte, and Chinese pronunciations even less so, as everyone discovered when I had a go at unravelling the Boxer Rebellion five years ago. One of the major reasons that remastering When Diplomacy Fells' first year in existence appealed to me is because I knew I'd get to do over episodes or incidents that really grinded my gears, and you're probably unsurprised to learn that there were many such incidents. I've always struggled with pronunciation as a historian, as a person, in general, really, so being able to try again at the Boxer Rebellion was something I really relished. The audio genocide I committed here was up there with the Russian accidents. Accidents? Well, accidents, yes. But also accents in the original take for the Russo-Japanese War. In my opinion, yes, it was actually that bad. I had a few very polite Chinese-speaking people tell me that, yeah, it was awful. But in a nice way. So I appreciated that. Hopefully, this time I'll redeem myself. I wouldn't hold your breath, but... At the very least, what I do here shouldn't take away from the central story, which in itself is really fascinating and forms a really important part of the pre-World War I world that had to be told, I felt. And I still feel that way today. If you want to understand what happened before the First World War and how everyone viewed places like Asia and Africa as a, essentially their stomping ground, then the Boxer Rebellion is probably the most notorious place to start off doesn't exactly cast Europeans in a very good light, but there you go. Everyone seemed to be doing it, so it seemed only to make sense to jump on the bandwagon and imperialise. There's even a book called *The Scramble for China that I have, which I would recommend if anyone could track that down. I don't quite remember the name of the author who wrote it, but I know I'm halfway through it. It's like Thomas Pakenham's well-renowned book that looked at Africa instead, and I think it's really shaped on that in many ways. So the Boxer Rebellion, we're redoing it. We're redoing it as part of When Diplomacy Fells remastered, because we've had five weeks to run wild. Those weeks are not run out yet, and there's still some more audio gems to come. A few surprises, I'm not gonna gonna ruin the surprise, I like surprising you guys, as you well know, but a few things still to come, and to be honest, I did this because I wanted to give you guys a gift, but I also did this because it's coming up to the wedding and all that jazz, and in a way, that was kind of a bad reason, because it meant I didn't have very much concentration or focus for the wedding, but... Ah, we had it in hand. By now, we're married by the time you're listening to this, which seems incredible because it's February that I'm talking to you now, and can't really imagine being married, but I guess you have to start adulting somewhere, and I'll just do the best I can. So, this remastered project was really a great way, I feel, for you guys to engage with the old stuff that When Diplomacy Fails has done, and hopefully engage in some new stuff as well, because we're five years old now, guys. We've come a long way, even just to look at what we do now. We have a YouTube channel, we have books, we have merchandise, a significant amount, and of course, we're on Patreon. So, if you guys are interested in supporting us on Patreon, go to wdfpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner, or go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, all of which will help us out. If you are interested in getting some of the goodies that When Diplomacy Fails is storing up just for you... And if you would like to alleviate the burden that all this merchandise has become for Anna's personal space, because our apartment's basically turned into a warehouse of when diplomacy Fells furniture, and you can only use so many pens, guys, before they start to get in the way and become annoying. But there you go. Please support the podcast in any way you can. You guys are doing such a great job, and I really, really appreciate it. Okay, I will now take you to 1895. Wish me luck with the accents, because Lord knows I need it. Loyalty to a petrified opinion never yet broke a chain or freed a human soul. Mark Twain. The build up to the First World War is often littered with stories and examples of imperialism in Africa. The so called Scramble for Africa was a theatre of European diplomacy that's well remembered by many historians, and its contribution to the breakdown in relations between the major powers in Europe shouldn't be overlooked. Britain tried to maintain a hold on Egypt and secure Indian trade routes while also securing South Africa from the Boers, as we've seen. France was heavily involved in Algeria and owned a vast region of the African interior. It was in many ways a distraction from its previous European humiliations. Italy wanted an empire but arrived too late to acquire all that much, though it did manage to extend its influence into Somalia and then, more infamously, Libya in an attack that arguably kicked off the series of Many wars that escalated into the bigger war. Russia, Austria-Hungary and Germany all would like to have had extended their influence into the continent, but only Germany was really successful in this, guided by its determination to acquire its own place in the sun while directed also by aggressive colonial institutions. Why am I talking about Africa then? You may be wondering when this podcast is meant to be on the Boxer Rebellion. Well, you haven't made a mistake, don't go anywhere, this podcast is on the Boxer Rebellion, but my point is, while we often look at the scramble for Africa, if we want to understand the era before the First World War, then we also need to look at something else which had been ongoing since the 1830s. I'm talking about the scramble for China. China was under the Qing Dynasty during China's less proud years. It was an age of imperialism where China had little answer for the technological superiority that's greeting its enormous country by then containing a population of over 500 million souls. Since Europeans could walk, they'd been told about the superiority of the white man, and we often forget that this ingrained belief was twinned with the great ingredients of racism and evangelism. We've seen them all come together in numerous episodes in the past, guys, and this war here will be no different. In a sense, the Chinese exploitation can be categorised along both racial and imperial lines, as the aforementioned views of European racial superiority and Christian mission were combined with the opportunities for trade deals and various monopolies that were established in increasing numbers in the years after the Napoleonic Wars. Peter Harrington, in his book Peking, 1900, The Boxer Rebellion, sets the scene when he writes... Following the Napoleonic Wars, the victorious nations were looking to expand their foreign markets through the acquisition of foreign lands, a phenomenon that would only end with the onset of the First World War. Britain in particular saw China as an untapped resource worth exploiting and fought two wars between 1839 and 60 to secure a foothold on the vast country. These two wars were called Opium Wars, named after the drug Opium which Britain was selling in massive numbers through India to China. In what I see as one of Britain's most questionable periods, and I'm Irish for crying out loud, Britain fought a war to ensure that it could continue to sell drugs to the desperate Chinese. It's an example, certainly one of the darkest, of the lengths Britain would go in order to make a sizable wad of cash opium destabilised China and ensured that Britain had easier access to tea which was the major reason China remained such an important trading partner of Britain's during this time. But Britain wasn't alone in its exploitation of China's situation. The Asian balance of power was altered dramatically with the emergence of Japan onto the scene in the late 19th century, after centuries of complete isolation. Unlike, or perhaps because of, China, Japanese statesmen were determined to adopt modern ideas in technology and science while also industrialising at a rate that would put Britain to shame. Of course, Japan was playing the modernising game late, but it at least played it before foreign powers got a whiff of how much better their technology was compared to Japan's. Japan in the late 19th century was finally emerging onto at least the Asian stage as certainly a a localised power, though To be fair, there were very few states in Asia that could claim to be powers at all. India was under Britain's thumb heavily at this stage. Indonesia, Indochina, Burma and, of course, China itself were being actively carved up by the Western European states. Japanese statesmen were understandably terrified at the prospect of their sovereignty being swallowed up by the seemingly endless imperial swarm of Europeans. They were motivated by their fear, by the examples all around them, that the alternative to industrialism, to gunpowder and to ending the policy of isolation, was the end of Japan as a proud and independent Asian state and slavery at the behest of the Europeans. When Commodore Perry's ship engaged in some friendly gunboat diplomacy in the 1850s, and Japan saw that its paper houses and wooden vessels were powerless to resist the American demands. Japan revolted, threw out the rule book, and opened itself for business and new ideas. This metamorphosis, without trying to sound over dramatic, proved its worth forty years later in 1894, when Japan appeared transformed, its population swollen, and already ready to plant the country's flag across Asia. In this circumstance, China stood ripe for the taking, having proven its helplessness to those in the West. The Japanese believed they could do an even better job of exploiting China than those that had come before it. In this, the Japanese were correct, at least in some senses, because the Japanese stormed through China in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894. As per the terms of the war, Japan gained what it had wanted, a foothold on the Asian continent, in the form mainly of Korea, while its expansion, though initially greeted with indifference by Russia and, of course, China, came to be seen by other European powers like Britain, As a perfect chance to curb the influence of others, like Russia, in the theatre. In the past, Britain had often tried to maintain the balance of power in Europe, and it now sought to do the same in Asia. Japan could be useful as a tool to stop Russia's worrying encroachment into Asia and its demands on Asian ports which Britain wanted to monopolise. Asia and Europe were surprisingly linked during this time period, as we see Britain had little in the way of mates in Europe at this stage. The story of armed camps is all too familiar to us, but should be trotted out again in any case, just so this episode can be kind of stand-alone. France and Russia had signed a number of treaties with each other, solidifying their alliance in 1893, a move which left Britain in the cold, all too aware of the threat posed by a Franco-Russian friendship that it had nothing in common with and that wanted nothing to do with her. Germany was an option, and the two states were joined by familial ties and through common interests, even as the 1890s provided a few hiccups, and even as Britain fought a protracted war against the Boer settlers. Any question of the rest of Europe's powers referred in the end to Berlin, as Austria was tied securely to Germany, as was, technically at least, the Italian Kingdom. Turkey was on its last legs, facing nationalist movements with a worrying frequency And as the 19th century came to a close, all that Constantinople had to allude to was its survival during several ruinous wars with Russia, a recent war with Greece, which it did in fact win, and a history of being propped up by the West. The United States was hardly an ally of Britain at the time. The common bonds of language and, to a lesser extent, religion went only so far when their individual policies were so different. And many Americans, descending from the very Europeans that Britain couldn't align with, saw little or no value in committing to an alliance with Britain. The Monroe Doctrine had of course complicated matters, and the recent American victory against Spain meant that Washington didn't really need a reason to tie itself to any power, least of all Britain. If Britain had engaged in some splendid isolation in the past, then America was even better equipped to do so, existing as it did on a continent far away from the European squabbles and what it saw as outdated powers and monarchies and issues. It's unlikely that Britain was actually looking for an alliance with its former colony at this time anyway. Europe, Africa, India and Asia all busied the statesmen of Britain at this time as her far-flung imperial interests now snaked across the globe. Such officials couldn't help but notice the rise of Japan under these circumstances, but an alliance in the late 1890s wasn't a straightforward question, particularly since London was still considering its options with Germany and splendid isolation remained the byword of British policy, even if its splendidness had somewhat waned. In terms of power and influence at the end of the century, China barely resembled its former self. Though it had a huge population, many were desperately poor. Though it had a history of astonishing creativity in technology and science, over the past centuries it had been crippled by a reluctance to change though it was subjected to occupation by many foreign powers that didn't necessarily get along, the one thing those powers could agree on was that a weak China was a good China, and any attempt by China's court, its emperor or its people to remove their influence was a bad China. A very bad China. It was into this depressing situation that the beleaguered Qing dynasty, technically ruled by the emperor Wang Shu, fell. China's imperial system is somewhat complicated for us because since 1882, China had been under the de facto rule of, not Emperor Wang Shu, but the Emperor's aunt, an incredible woman that history knows as the Empress Dowager, Zer Xi. From a young age, Zer She rose through the ranks of Imperial China, beginning her life in the Imperial Palace as a concubine, then a consort, and finally the Empress. To Wang Shu, this experienced, powerful and ambitious woman was his ruler, since he had been pegged to succeed her regency. Xerxi maintained a tight grip on the young boy, and ensured that he never acquired a power base for himself. This control continued when, after some years of living under his aunt's shadow, Wang Shu sought to distinguish his reign by implementing a number of reforms. Unable to accept the change that such reforms would entail changes which included centralising Chinese state powers, reforming the imperial family as a constitutional monarchy and doubling down on industrial development, shi acted fast and confined the young emperor Wang Shu to house arrest in a coup following the Sino-Japanese War of 1894. The measures Wang Shu sought had not been universally popular, but shi undoubtedly had an easier time arresting the young emperor owing to China's poor performance in its war against Japan. Making light of the national humiliation that Beijing had only just experienced, Xerxi apportioned blame upon Wang Xiu's reforms, and she pushed Wang Xiu's old pals out of government. It should be added that Xerxi was extremely conservative and resistant to change, and having evicted and arrested her nephew's developing reign, she turned back the Chinese clock yet further. Wang Xiu had hoped that these reforms would, along with numerous planned technological changes, bring China back from the brink, so in a sense he could be seen as the good guy if we want to view history in a really bad way and do things the way we're told not to do from an unbiased perspective, but since when is being unbiased for So Xerxi was having none of this advancement or technological change, and she was wary of losing power in the new plan so she cut short the so-called 100 days reform and arrested Wang Shu as we saw, acquiring all the power of an emperor for herself in the process. It was because of her and her posse of loyal, conservative ministers that China would enter the 20th century no more advanced than she had been 200 years before. I will come back to this idea later.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: But always remember in China that there are a few things going on here. It's not as simple as foreigners exploiting the Chinese or that the Chinese were reluctant to change. What I found in my investigations was that the Chinese mostly wanted to change. The Empress didn't want change because she wanted to hog all the power. The Empress controlled the army and police. The Chinese didn't want to fight the Empress's forces. The Chinese people gradually accepted the status quo. And the incoming foreigners exploited this status quo. While the rest of the world had embraced the latest technological trends, China held on to a feudal system which had been largely unchanged for two millennia. The Japanese reformed because those in power saw the need for it, while China contained a number of reformers who were well aware of the inferiority of their technology in comparison to others, clearly shown by the Hundred Days Reform, but so long as those in power in China resisted all calls for change, change failed to come. At the same time, though, you had many in China who were becoming infuriated with the encroaching influence of the West on their country, and many who were convinced that their plight was the fault of the Western Europeans, and not their conservative empress. From the list of slights committed by the foreigners, it's hard to see why. If we are to blame the plight of China entirely on the empress, which is always nice and straightforward and fun, we must remove the interference of the foreign powers from the equation. Would China have been okay had no foreign powers shown up and demanded concessions? Perhaps. Had imperialism not existed as the dominant mindset of the late 19th century Europeans, China may have had a better time of it. It may have adapted naturally to the circumstances and implemented change slowly. What about the reluctance of the Empress Sir, She? you might be thinking? Had no foreign power invaded, she would still have been there, hoarding all the power for herself and sending her country into the doldrums. Well, that's a good point, and I know I'm speculating a good deal here, but consider this. Zershii was just one woman. She was powerful, and I would argue damaging, but she was still just one person. Having celebrated her 60th birthday in 1896, she was also considered very old for her time, So her frustrating prevention of change and reluctance to reform would likely be undone by Emperor Wang Shu once she had died and he had been brought back to the throne. It has to be said as well that imperialism was ruining China. It was exhausting her resources and shaming her people. It was taking her dignity and destabilising her power and splitting the country into factionalist states. It was making her poor and the imperialists very, very rich. Christianity was being brought from Europe by missionaries eager to spread their message and gain converts. Chinese men and women mostly resisted their offer, but a few did convert in the following years, while some began to see Christianity as a useful tool for themselves. These were the people who would suffer the most ferocious attacks of all when the Boxer Rebellion eventually erupted. Confucianism, you see, was the dominant religion in China at the time and had been for centuries. The upper, middle, and lower classes, from the peasants to the nobility, were inspired by the teachings of Confucius. Confucianism went hand in hand with the conservatism I mentioned earlier, and the two complemented the other, as Confucianism came to be seen more and more as the original, true, and proper religion of China, to be upheld at all costs against the wicked Christian invaders and their foolish converts. Many Chinese converted because they saw the benefits in being protected by the Christian church in China which was also backed up by the West. Criminals then who had fled justice would convert to Christianity as a way to gain immunity, and foreign officials would not allow the Chinese to touch them. This understandably frustrated the Chinese, and they began to see Christianity more and more as the religion of criminals or slaves of the imperial foreigners. Of course, this wasn't always true, I don't want to generalise many Chinese Christians converted for legitimate reasons, but nothing gets the people angry at something like an extreme example of evil from a suspicious movement. To create the atmosphere of hatred and fear around Christianity, conservative Chinese officials began to promote the idea of Christianity that promised to swallow the honour of men, defile the ways of women and corrupt the minds of children, as one official put it. Great support thereafter began to swell for a movement that had taken on many faces and adopted many causes in the previous years, the Boxers. The origins of the Boxers may date back as early as the 18th century, but they were a secretive movement, always changing with the times and adopting whatever consensus they could find to gain popularity. Their proper name was the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the Chinese version. Some reckon that they split from the White Lotus sect, a society with similar secretive tendencies, to become more hardline, reactionary and aggressive. They would never even make historical headlines had they not made a crucial change in their policy in the late 1890s, from that of frequent and passive attacks on those weaker than themselves and on the imperial dynasty, to one of straightforward xenophobia. It was this change that garnered them the most support from the people, Suddenly recruits were everywhere and sympathisers could be found all over northern China. Amongst these sympathisers was the Empress herself, Sir Xi. The boxers began to gain notoriety when their deeds became known to those in the imperial court. The boxers were said to possess special powers. Training for 100 days could provide you with the power to stop bullets, while double that would enable you to fly. Such powers were, of course, ludicrous, but for a population that were seriously looking for something, anything, to make their lives better, the boxers looked like the answer. It wasn't going to be easy for the boxers to defy the majority of the court, or get the majority of the people on their side, but because of their anti-foreign sentiments, the frustrations that had been building within every Chinese man and woman for many years, finally seemed to have an outlet. Numerous natural disasters compounded the problems faced by the lower Chinese populace. As Lynn Bowden in her book, The Boxer Rebellion, explains when she writes, Two successive harvests had failed. The crop failures caused widespread famine and a plague of locusts only added to the suffering. As if this was not enough, the Yellow River burst its banks and flooded hundreds of villages. The Chinese people could do little about the natural disasters, but they felt they could do something about the foreigners and their modern ideas. A disproportionately small number of Chinese benefited from having the nations of Britain, France, Japan, America, Austria, Germany, Russia, and Italy on their land. Trade was no comfort for those Chinese that had lost everything, as the West occupied and actively partitioned their country into spheres of influence. While their origins may be a mystery, the reasons why the Boers gained... Boers? No, boxers. Some random Boers just creeping into China, that's grand. So the reasons why the boxers gained such a rapid rise in popularity should not be too much of a mystery, even if their origins are. Because with a population frustrated embittered, and, and exhausted by foreign occupation, the boxers offered a way out. Don't forget there had been nationalist movements before in China. The opium wars were forms of protest, but they had never really captured the hearts and minds of the population like the boxers had. Yes, it was a splinter movement, and after the Boxer Rebellion was over, many Western diplomats would discover that few outside of northern China had even heard of the boxers, let alone supported them and their crazy rebellion. But for those Chinese that they did come in contact with, many were inspired by their bravery, their mysticism, refusal to compromise, daring acts and determination to change the status quo. Some of the poorest of the poor in their desperation would put all faith in the boxers, who gained their name from Western sources that claimed to have witnessed their proficiency in martial arts. Magic boxing, Westerners called it, and the name boxers kind of just stuck. Few thought of them as anything other than a small nuisance, while in some countries unaware or not fully engaged in the politics of China, like, say, Britain or Japan, it was just thought that all Chinese were boxers, and that all Chinese acted in the interests of the boxers. We'll clearly see later on that that wasn't the case. It's not important who didn't support the Boxers, to us at least at the moment, but who did support them. When the Empress zer Xi and her nephew Wang Shu first heard of the Boxers, it was during one of the many anti-foreign riots that had just been started. In December 1899, after foreign pressure forced the removal of one of the Empress's beloved governors, Yu Xian, the situation began to spiral quickly out of control. Instead of being a good little public servant and just retiring, Yuxiain appealed to the Empress and capitalised on her frustration with the foreign powers. Foreign missionaries had been killed by the boxers, and the Empress's court was under much pressure to crack down on the movement and apologise for the deaths. Contributions were levied from the Empress's court to be paid to the appropriate missionary institutions, and this was seen as the last straw. At the end of her tether and desperate at the situation, zershi made the crucial mistake of listening to Yuxiainn. And then she made the further mistake of believing in him. Yuxian's buddies in the Chinese court included the Grand Secretary Kang Ai, whose job it was to basically run the government, but he had little power. Kind of like the position of Prime Minister today, except you can imagine that the power and role he would normally have was swapped with the Emperor's power, or in this case Empress the planned reforms that Zershii had jailed her nephew over would have placed the roles in their more recognisable order to us, and the Grand Secretary would have taken power from the Emperor, and the Emperor and other dynastic figures would have acquired a mere ceremonial or symbolic role. Understandably, because she wanted to hoard her power, Zershii didn't want these reforms to occur, because she wanted a monopoly on her power, but she did recognise the value of the Grand Secretary's word, if only with his own allies. She often listened to him and in this case was swayed by his opinion, as well as the influence of the princes, who were Wang Shu's brothers. With these figures also backing the cause of the boxers, Xerxi began to see the boxers as a mystically powerful and potentially useful government, which could rid China of the foreign menace and give her back her freedom once and for all. The tensions with the European powers really took hold after the Sino-Japanese War of 1894. After China's defeat to a modern Japanese navy and Western-trained army, she was virtually defenseless and her court knew it so paranoia began to creep in because it was feared that foreign powers would use the opportunity granted by the depressed and vulnerable state of china to wring territorial and economic concessions from her or at least more than had ever been demanded before at this point because the boxes associated themselves with an anti-western rhetoric they began to count an increasing number of at least sympathetic officials in the north of china Though they would have questioned at least some of their methods and maybe even have wondered if they could actually fly after all. In 1897 two German missionaries were murdered in Shandong province, the most anti-foreign and anti-Christian of all the Chinese provinces and many historians suspect likely the birthplace of the boxer movement. Germany was outraged to discover that two of her nationals had been killed while doing their duty on foreign soil and she demanded compensation. The Chinese offered money, but this time Germany wanted land. It demanded and received the ports of Tsingtao and Kachau, and it at once became clear that demanding Chinese territory was the new black. With nobody wanting Germany to have all the clay for itself, Russia was the next to jump on board with its demands on Port Arthur and Darien on the Pacific coast. These moves worried Britain, who was already heavily involved in China due to India and its previous opium wars. France had been an active player in Asia for many years, It had fought the Sino-French War in 1882 and had actually gained Indochina in the process. As China had feared then it was right, the loss in the war did open up a scramble to gain Chinese prizes and the French quickly jumped on the bandwagon and claimed the port of Quang Guangchowen far down south. Britain for her part obtained a 25 year lease on the port of Wei. During this time, a railway from Beijing to Sin had put many Chinese boaters and transporter wagons out of business, which only further depressed the population. But this was just the first step in the foreign nations' slights against the Chinese. While some Chinese began to turn to secret societies like the Boxers, many governors saw the damage being done to their provinces and saw commercial reasons rather than nationalist ones as the main impetus for change. Change should have meant an end to the authoritarian rule of the Empress and the implementation of reforms, but instead of doing that, Xerxes insisted on maintaining the status quo in the government, and surrounded herself with conservative aides and ministers and yes-men. These conservative individuals happened to identify themselves with the ideas of the boxers, and thus we can explain why the Grand Secretary and other princes close to the Empress were so determined to persuade her of her need to support the righteous and harmonious fists. I'm not suggesting for one second that the foreign powers are faultless here. What I am saying is that it's not as simple as the foreign powers caused the Boxer Rebellion. If the foreign powers hadn't been there, it's unlikely a rebellion of any kind would have taken place, but had the Chinese government been allowed to reform properly under the imprisoned Emperor and adapted to deal with the kind of problems that it did so often face, instead of sticking with its outdated form of government, rigidly enforced by Tsar Xi, then the call for action and eventually rebellion by the Boxers probably wouldn't have seen the light of day. Saying that, though, we have to bear in mind that the Western powers had evidently failed to convince the average Chinese man or woman that life under foreign rule was a good thing, and the militarism, ignorance, and imperialism of the Western powers was a huge reason that China eventually fell apart. To clarify, sorry about all this rambling, but I'm not saying that foreign occupation is a good thing or that the Chinese should have bowed to the occupiers. I would just always ask you to remember that there are two sides to everything. Nowadays, there tends to be three types of sources you can get on the Boxer Rebellion, those that were written at the time by Western authors and thus harbour the usual bias towards the occupiers, while emphasising the brutality of the Boxers. Then there's the Chinese sources that draw on the hopelessness and anger of the local people, and who point to the awful nature of the foreign regime. Contemporary writers tend to sit on the fence, as of course supporting one side too heavily over the other would be a tad scandalous. The last type of source is the one you'll likely come across the most where you to study the Boxer Rebellion today, but the first and second options shouldn't be discounted, so long as you can take both with a grain of salt. As real primary sources, they're a valuable reminder of what was wrong and right with both sides, and how the problem with China was a two-headed, not one-headed monster. In my view, one of those heads belonged to imperialism, while the other belonged to the empress, Sir Xi. Things escalated quickly once Governor Yu Xian ran to convince the Empress of the Boxers' goals. She likely sympathised with their goals for many years, just as most Chinese had done. When Zershi was apparently shown that the Boxers could in fact fly and stop bullets, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that demonstration, her sympathies for the Boxers turned to active support. An imperial decree was sent out on the 12th of January 1900, which stated that those were found to be drilling in the countryside shouldn't be considered bandits which, in short, gave the boxers free reign to drill and practice manoeuvres in the open, and many governors were secretly advised by the Chinese to stop harassing the boxers altogether. Some governors complied, but interestingly, some refused to listen, and they dismissed these orders immediately as only ones that could have come from non-imperial sources, the main reason being that those governors simply didn't believe that the empress and her court would try and provoke the foreign powers. And provoked they were, instead of arresting or suppressing those who were agitating for a removal of their authority, the Chinese seemed to be actively encouraging the boxers' activities. It could not be tolerated. On the 17th of April, another decree was issued stating that the organisation of militia was in line with the civilians' right to defend oneself, a process called keeping mutual watch and giving mutual aid, and that those individuals who practised such moves were to be left alone, Again, this gave the boxers more leeway, and it meant that they were free from the kind of persecution that would otherwise hamper their drilling, practicing, and increasingly becoming a trend in boxer-affiliated areas, the destruction of far owned property. The stage seemed to be set as the summer of 1900 approached, for a showdown with the desperate Chinese, grouped with their boxer militias, and the Western powers, spread across compounds, mission stations, and ports in the country. Only Empress she herself could hold the boxers back now, and only the boxers could apparently contain the bitter anti-Western resentment which had been building in China for nearly a century.